for coming, and welcome to Race and Ethnic Notions in Popular Culture. I'm Anna DeVere Smith, and I'm going to moderate this uh, panel. So I'm going to do uh, brief introductions of each of our panelists, and then they're all going to speak for about three to five minutes. And we have a surprise uh, activity with, with one of those uh, speakings from three to five minutes. And then uh, we'll have a discussion here, and then very soon we'll open it up for you all to speak. Do we have um, uh, mics in the, in the house? Yeah. Cool. Um, and uh, I think, you know, we have a little bit of leftover unfinished business from uh, a, a panel I did yesterday with Jeffrey Fletcher. Some of you might be here from that. And, uh, and so we can also just make it this a kind of a continuing conversation. I'm sure all of you have been stimulated by many things that are going on here this week. And so see this as part of a continuing conversation that you are a, a part of. So um, Alfredo Barrios... Am I saying that correctly? I should have checked in advance. Um, He's one of the executive producers of the hit USA network show, Burn Notice. He was born and raised in Los Angeles. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. I'm the only outsider up here. As it turns out, all these people were at Harvard at one point or another. (laughs) Well, I was there, but not like them. I was there for hire, I suppose. Wouldn't you say, Doreen? uh, after a five-year stint as a litigator at the Los Angeles office of Almaveny uh, and Myers, he ventured into screenwriting and was staffed on various television shows, including First Monday, Mr. Sterling, Lion's Den, Law and Order, Just Legal, Close to Home and Justice. His enthusiasm for plot and character is clear from his blog, so I, I refer you to that. He is part of a program in Los Angeles uh, called Young Storytellers, which bring storytelling and writing into communities where uh, we may not expect to find it. And I know, I won't speak for you, but it seems like you also see this as a part of trying to ensure that uh, writing, uh, the staffs of writing are diverse in the future, not just in terms of race, but experiences. Absolutely. Um, Patricia Williams uh, professor Patricia Williams is a, uh, a professor at Columbia Law School. She wrote an extremely exciting book um, called The Alchemy of Rates and Rights, a diary of a law professor. Uh, I was actually at Harvard the year that that came out, and Brattle Street was just electrified by that book being in a bookstore, which I think doesn't exist anymore in um, Harvard Square, but very exciting, and also the author of The Rooster's Egg, Seeing a Colorblind Future, and other books. You probably know her not only because she is a public intellectual and uh, one of the most um, important intellectuals in law and in culture because of her entertaining, provocative, and strong column in The Nation, Diary of a Mad Law Professor. She did win a MacArthur grant, um, and she got it when they, like, doubled the money. So we don't feel sorry for her. Um, (laughs) uh, Jeffrey Fletcher has made history, as I said yesterday. He was the first African-American to win an Academy Award for his adaptation of the book Push into the screenplay Precious. He apprenticed under Martin Scorsese and studied with Spike Lee. Magic Markers, which is a short film that he wrote 
directed, shot, and edited, received accolades from numerous organizations, including the Directors Guild of America and the Sundance Film Festival. Precious won a lot of recognition even before it got an Academy Award. He got the 2010 Independent Spirit Award for Best Screenplay, Grand Jury Prize, and Audience Award at the 2009 Sundance Film Festival. He also received uh, top honors at the Toronto Film Festival. He is the son of Dr. Betty Fletcher. You know, uh, I've been here off and on since 2006, and I've never had a panel requested, but there were major requests yesterday that we have a special panel for Dr. Betty Fletcher so that she could talk about parenting. (laughs) Dr. Fletcher, would you stand up once again? Some of you might have gone to the, a panel of her other, one of her other sons, Alphonse Fletcher Jr., who's here with us. Um, Doreen Kondo is a great friend of mine, a professor at the University of Southern California. She's a professor of anthropology and American studies and ethnicity. Her research interests include cultural theory, performance, aesthetics and politics, cross-racial identification, multiracial collaboration, modes of embodiment, ethnography. Um, She has saved my life on a number of occasions. She functioned as dramaturg on my play uh, Twilight about the Los Angeles riots. Without her, I could never have dared to get up on stage and speak as and in the words of uh, the Korean Americans who were affected by the Los Angeles riots. She's also worked with me on two other plays, House Arrest, which was about the American presidency, and my current play, Let Me Down Easy. I always look to her to understand race more deeply than I can, even my own racial experience. So I'm very happy that she could be with us tonight. She had, today, she has many publications, including Visions of Race, Performance, Ethnography, Politics, about face, performing race and fashion and theater, crafting selves, power, gender, and discourses of identity in a Japanese workplace. Many articles, many book reviews, many book chapters. She works really hard, as do the other two uh, individuals here. And so could we have a round of applause for this wonderful panel? Um, Alfredo, why don't you start us off? Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for the Aspen's Institute invitation that was extended to me. And uh, it's a real honor to be here. Uh, uh, it's been an amazing two, three days. And it's a real honor to be part of this esteemed panel. Um, and particularly uh, being part of it with Anna DeVere Smith, who, um, uh, and I haven't told her this, was an early inspiration for me. Uh, I remember watching Twilight um, at the Mark Taper in Los Angeles. I was a young attorney at the time and um, being blown away by it. And um, I'd seen plays before obviously, and, and was moved by them, but not in the same way that I was moved by her play because it was, to me, so timely. Um, people were trying to make sense of what had happened um, in the aftermath of the Rodney King trial and verdict and the riots. And um, so much of us were affected by it in different ways. And 
confused by it, to be honest. And I was among them. But I, was, I found um, some sense of understanding from her play and um, found it incredibly empathetic and um, taught me a lot about um, drama, actually. And like I said, it was an early inspiration for me. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, portraying race in popular culture. I look at it from a very specific prism. I'm a TV writer and producer. Um, I've been doing that for over 10 years um, on a variety of different shows. I'm currently on Burn Notice, or one of the executive producers and writers on Burn Notice. For those who haven't seen it, it's in a nutshell about a spy who is fired and becomes a PI in Miami and helps the downtrodden avenge their injustices. Um, it's along the lines of The Equalizer. I don't know if anybody saw that show during the 80s, but um, it's a vengeance show. Uh, David versus Goliath. And uh, Michael Weston, who is the main character portrayed by Jeffrey Donovan, is the kind of avenging guy who is in the little guy's corner. And um, we produce a show in Miami. It's based there. That's where the show takes place. And because of that, um, since Miami is such a multicultural, multi-ethnic city, we tend to write storylines and create characters who are also multi-ethnic, multi-racial, or of different races. And we tend to take our obligation to portray those characters in very specific ways, in very authentic ways, and, not, and try to steer clear of, of generic stereotypes and, and um, cliches. Um, and part of that is what Jeffrey said yesterday during his panel where he said, you know, the more specific you get with your character, the more detail you get with your character, the more authentic you get with your character, the more real they are and the more relatable they are to the audience, even if they're not of the same race or the same background or the same culture. And then their story becomes universal to all of us because they are real people. And we take our obligation really seriously, I think in large part because we as a staff are very diverse. We have, I think, one of the most diverse staffs in Hollywood. We have Latinos, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Pakistanis, Jewish writers, white Anglo-Saxon writers. We have women. We have men. We have a lot of different people from different backgrounds. And we acknowledge and appreciate the differences among us and understand that we all can't be reduced to a type or a stereotype or a cliche. So, you know, and I'll give you an example. You know, when I was on other shows and I would create a, quote, Latino character, people would often, because we were based in L.A., and a lot of those productions assumed that it was a Mexican character. I myself was Mexican, and maybe I assumed that because of that, but I didn't want to just create Mexican characters. There are a lot of different... There, there are Latinos that are from Cuba. There are Latinos that are from... Dominican Republic, Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico, Colombia, Venezuela. But they reduced it to a type, you know, and a, kind of a generic type. And I, when I was on the show and I got in a position where we could really influence the show, I, I wanted to steer away from that. I wanted to create characters that were much more specific than a, quote, Latino character. And so on the show, when we create characters, we really go out of our way to research backgrounds, um, you know, if we, we have, the, you know, 
a Cuban character will speak differently than a Puerto Rican character, will speak differently than a Mexican character. The cadence is different. The culture is different. The references are different. The dress is different. The communities themselves look different. And we all aim to really get it right. And sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't succeed. But we really strive for that. And I think we've been rewarded for that because the show is hit. It's a, it's a huge hit. It's one of the highest rated shows in cable history and it's a global hit. It's seen in, over, it's seen in nearly 50 countries. And I think the reason it's, it's a global hit is because of the specificity that Jeffrey was talking about. We really aim for that. And so people feel, I think, when they watch the show that they're watching something fresh. <laughs> As opposed to the generic stuff that they've been fed, for the most part, through Hollywood. And I think we've been rewarded for our efforts and for the diversity that we have in the writing staff where it all begins. And I think, you know, I'll wrap up. Diversity has been held up as a laudable goal, you know, kind of on a normative level. It is good to be inclusive because Hollywood has been so exclusive. But I think it also makes a lot of business sense. And I don't think people have made that argument before, or I certainly haven't heard it. But I think Burn Notice is an example of why diversity in behind the camera, in front of the camera, throughout the production, just makes good business sense. I think we're creating a fresher product, and I think people are rewarding us for it. Thank you. Professor Williams? Um, my, um, I, everybody else here is involved with some aspect of real theater, um, and, and so I, my take on, on, on popular culture and race and ethnicity really has to do with um, the media and how it informs um, juries and the public in terms of its expectations of what um, uh, law can do, of who is a criminal, who is not. And so my particular concern are the representations on things like Fox News, um, as well as um, more fair and more balanced media as well. <laughs> um, but basically, the, the degree to which, for example, the media can take a single incident, um, a car crash, sex scandal, but particularly images of people of color, in particular black men, um, and uh, repeat it over and over and over again so that the actual statistical occurrence of crime becomes highly magnified in people's minds um, so that the representations um, become fictionalized, essentially. Um, it becomes a narrative that, is, that operates um, to trump the actual data and the actual statistics. Um, it affects our perceptions in ways that are very profound. Um, so I wanted to talk about the general background of how, throughout our history, race and ethnicity have played against each other and how we've arrived at a moment which many people term post-racial. Um, but I think that's, um, it, 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 that, the, that, the, that the perceptions um, that we draw from popular culture actually um, mask the degree to which um, we are still dealing with, with the tremendous um, history, legacy of racism against black Americans in particular, um, but against a, a large range of ethnic groups as well, um, that we also have inflect, that, that our racism and, and ethnic bias is also inflected by class. Um, particularly right now, I think that we are dealing with a great deal of class division that we are not dealing with except in racial terms, and also with nativism that we're not really recognizing is also racism. So, um, 
from the time of early colonial settling in this country, um, there was, I think, a division between uh, uh, the, you know, wasps or white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Protestants and those who were brought here as labor. And very soon there was a sense of uh, polarization um, between those deemed white, um, and again, this is a very capacious and malleable category, um, and those deemed um, slaves or chattel or subhuman. And so you also had indentured servants, Irish, Germans, and so forth, who were not um, of the same status, but who, were, who, who, who operated as a kind of buffer um, ethnic category. Over time, we've had immigration laws where uh, the same battle about whether or not they're going to be on the on, on, on one side of the white Anglo-Saxon or white category as opposed to the black or the, the labor category. Um, we've gone back and forth. And so we all know the history of, of migrations of Puerto Ricans, Jews, Southern Europeans, Portuguese, Spanish, uh, uh, various groups from Asia, and, and the question of whether or not they are a sort of buffer group or model minority, um, uh, whether after one generation they fall into uh, the black category or the white category, um, has been um, an ongoing uh, 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 narrative of American history. Um, and so you have books like Noel Canadian's How the Irish Became White, um, how post-World War II Jews effectively assimilated um, as white. And that um, assimilation, um, I think, really reached a peak in the post-World War II period where you had suburbia and everybody who moved to suburbia moved out of sort of the west end of Boston or the Lower East Side of, 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 of New York and everybody became white in those suburbs. And it perhaps reached a peak in the 1980s when yuppies, the definition of a young urban professional, was complete erasure of a certain kind of ethnic identity. Um, now it seems to me that we have sort of moved in another direction. Um, we're in part of a global migratory uh, market of labor. Um, our demographics in the United States have changed dramatically. Um, we're, even African Americans are no longer simply descendants of slaves. They're from all over West Africa. They're from the Caribbean. Um, and now there's a real reclamation of um, ethnicity so that everybody is a hyphenated American, Italian American, a this American, a that American, a Caribbean American. Um, and uh, we have a new word called diversity. Um, and diversity is a good thing, I think. Um, but I, I, I worry a little bit that, in fact, what we have done um, is shift our paradigms from um, not just a black-white paradigm. We still talk about the black-white paradigm. But in fact, through the 1980s, perhaps, we had a paradigm which valued or which, um, which was really about white, non-white. So, and that is a pattern of so-called hypodescent. That is to say, if you had one drop, drop of something that wasn't white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you were not white. Um, and that was really the, the so-called one-drop rule, and it, you know, except for Louisiana or for a few other places, it pretty much dominated um, the determination of who was white and who was not in the United States. It seems to me we are moving through the influence, particularly from Latin America, to a system um, that might be called hyperdescent. And again, I think we're in a fluid moment, so I'm, I don't want to say this too definitively, um, but a moment in which a whole range of brown, pseudo-brown, intermediate people um, are claiming their identity, but they are not black. And, that, and so you, we're moving to a paradigm of black, not black. Um, 
And, uh, and so, therefore, you can have people like Joe Arpaio saying, well, I can't be racist because, after all, I'm Hispanic and therefore I can... Um, and so, so his overt um, racism um, and nativism is disguised in the vocabulary simply of um, uh, legal and illegal. Um, or, uh, uh, um, and, and, and I think that this, this process of disidentification with, all, with, with, with a great deal of what is actually racism um, and nativism, um, uh, our, our rage at so-called aliens, um, is very mixed up with a race and a class war um, that um, is hidden by a rather... Um, uh, um, a language of innocence um, that we call diversity. Because I couldn't possibly rephrase it. So, so, so people sort of use the... Um, the identity of their forefathers to, as, as, a, as a kind of um, bludgeon to say, I couldn't possibly be racist because, after all, I'm a minority too. And that's the downside, it seems to me, of this moment. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, the, the, the question of a world in which we are black and not black does not move um, the bottom line uh, uh, status uh, uh, Immovable, the immovable bottom status of who is black in this society. And those people are still the ones most incarcerated, most victimized by the class um, uh, divide, the increasing class divide, uh, and testably, um, empirically, um, through things like the implicit as association at, uh, um, bias test, um, the response to those particular faces, those, those perceptions, those propagated uh, images in popular culture are still the ones um, that provoke uh, the most prejudice and the most resistance to the ultimate project of integration. One, just quickly in a word, mm -hmm. um, in your brown, pseudo-brown map, mm -hmm. where do you put Asian, uh, people of Asian descent? Well, I mean, <laughs> this is not my vocabulary. Just, just, okay. in the, in, for example, in the adoption market, so to speak, uh, um, uh, Asians, Chinese babies, for example, are called pseudo-whites. <laughs> okay, that says so, it all. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Jeffrey. Well, I'd like to start by saying how much an honor it is to share the stage with such an accomplished group. Um, you know, I noticed something back in film school when it was the most remarkable dynamic. You'd have your classmates and uh, you'd you get to know them and sit in lectures and talk and have meals with them. And then when it came the day to show your work, you saw something that you often would never have anticipated. Uh, I remember there's a, a, a guy, he's the nicest, quietest guy in the world. And almost never spoke, but always had a smile for everyone. And we saw his film where he... He murdered this goldfish in the strangest way. <laughs> and, and I think it speaks to the idea that sometimes what we project, uh, we're not even sort of fully aware of it. Now, that's not to make an excuse for anybody, but it often shows that there are so many things that are so deeply ingrained within us that... Uh, things just... just just come up. For instance, in our household, we've talked about what's shown on the news all the time. And you would think 
that uh, the African-American population, which is uh, very small, committed 90% of the crimes. <laughs> and I, I think that it's, it's, it's an issue that, that is just perpetuates, self-perpetuates. And so when you're sitting in the editing room at some news channel or this or that, and you have the choice to show, even though you're probably not going to get a lot of footage on uh, other people committing crimes, and particularly white-collar crimes, um, they're going to go to that, partly for programming and, and grinning. And, and that's, uh, that's a, something that really uh, speaks to, to what has happened uh, to us. And, you know, Spike Lee said years ago, I, I went and heard him talk, and he said, if images of African Americans were, you know, as superheroes, lawyers, you know, uh, doctors, or all positive characters, if that were to make money, Hollywood would do it in a second. And I think, you know, early on uh, with the images of, of people of, of all backgrounds, not just African Americans, uh, I think there is just this uh, ignorance combined with. Um, ingrained ideas, vicious and uh, sensitive ingrained ideas that, that just didn't, didn't allow it to happen. And, you know, when you look at black exploitation, which it, as a word is a very, uh, can be considered a very negative word, but oddly enough, I, I almost look at it as something, something very positive. Images of African Americans were controlled by African Americans, and even though Sometimes the circumstances may not have been considered entirely positive. There was still the voice, uh, the mind from which the minds from which these 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 images sprang, still had a certain dignity about them. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the United States Postal Service uh, dedicated a stamp in honor of the filmmaker Oscar Micheaux. He's an African American filmmaker born in the 1800s. Now, you think it's hard to break in the business today. <laughs> my goodness. I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. And you know, at this ceremony, uh, Melvin Van Peebles was there. And uh, he said that he, he never heard of uh, Oscar Michaud. He said if he had 30 years earlier, he said it you know, his life would have, would have, would have, he would have been 30 years ahead. By now, and you know, people often ask, oh, "Do you feel any pressure being the first African American to win uh, a screenwriting Oscar?" And oddly enough, I feel none. And I feel none because, uh, and this will sound corny, and, and maybe even, uh, uh, but it really is, is so much bigger than me. I think there's a lot of lucky things: the timing of when I was born, a family. In which I was born, all those people who came before me and struggled, like Oscar Micheaux and Spike Lee, Melvin, Ben Peebles, Gordon Parks, on and on and on. So I still—it's—it's it's odd because you know we have Obama in office, and uh, the, some of the attention Precious has received, but 
you know, people have asked me, oh, do you think Precious will open doors for all these uh, other films that are coming? And honestly, I'd be a little surprised. I think that uh, Precious was uh, an anomaly. It was Precious. Yeah. It, so many strange things had to happen for that to happen. There's so many turns in the road where, I mean, can you imagine someone says to you, I want to make a film about uh, a very, very large African-American woman who has been raped and impregnated by her father and she's illiterate or semi-literate. Um, but as we said yesterday, the film gets a lot of attention because it's unusual, because there aren't very many that come out. Now, it'd be great if, you know, it's great, Will Smith does wonderful films, and it'd be great if we could have something all along the way. But, um, I don't know, ultimately, I, I, I guess I'll say more later, and those are, those are some uh, meanderings, but at, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, and we touched upon it earlier with universality, uh, maybe we'll get to a place where the film is, is a human film, not necessarily an African-American film or, um, or have other distinctions. And I feel that if, no matter what story one is telling, it has to have something that, that a way in for everybody. And um, as I said yesterday, our human experiences are so similar. It's, it's sort of remarkable. And... All we, we want to talk about is how, how, how different they are. And the fact that um, women who look nothing like Precious can come up to me and say, I am Precious. I, mean, I think ultimately that's the goal, and, and art is to sort of inspire and to bring people together. And we certainly do have a, have a very long way to go. And I thought things would, would be a little more advanced than, than they are right now. Uh, but that's all for now. Thank you. So, Doreen, I know enough about you to know that this notion of universality is complicated for you, and yes, maybe at some point is. you'll attack Jeffrey for his <laughs> idea that, no, no. Jeff, every, that every woman can be precious. But nonetheless, yes. let's proceed. Okay. I'll say something about the notion of the universal that circulates in the arts later. But uh, I uh, wanted to speak initially as a social scientist. I'm a cultural anthropologist by training, and then... Uh, as someone who is now um, doing creative writing as a playwright and who writes about theater. Uh, as a social scientist, I just wanted to echo some of uh, Patricia's uh, remarks and sentiments and to think about the ways in which our common sense discourse and ideology about race that reduces something that is actually a structural historical force, an axis of power, if you will, to sort of individual consciousness, um, you know, skin color, you know, mere difference on the individual level that we really need to think about, you know, these long, the long durée, right, the, the histories of uh, race and power that are always already at work. Um, and in terms of creative writing, it's made me think about protagonism and what it can enable and foreclose. And so the notion of like an individual who has a journey, right, and reaches some sort of resolution, conclusion, inherently means that other people who are not the protagonist have less developed subjectivities, right? And so what we, in the US at this moment, we have this really rich portrayal of 
white subjectivity, um, and usually white male subjectivity is sometimes white female subjectivity. And I think one of the interesting things now... Say what you mean by subjectivity. <laughs> um, just the complications of individual psyche, but as constituted in and through uh, forces of, of uh, power and history as well. But anyway, so, um, so we get the complications of the protagonist, and I think it's important to have different kinds of protagonists. I think that that's the, you know, the beauty of something like Precious, right, where we begin to see other kinds of narratives, other kinds of people is like occupying that position. I and certainly as a creative writer, I too am you know, trying to put Asian Americans in that, in that position. I'm also thinking that at some moment in history, there may be limits to that, to protagonism. And that's where I think you know, Anna's aesthetic interventions are very interesting because there is no real protagonist. There's no, it's not a linear structure. It's, you get individual stories in a kind of montage-like or associative um, collage, if you will. And it makes one think about, I mean, so that different subjectivities are developed sort of equally, if you will. Um, there's no neat resolution. Um, and it also, I think, uh, in all of this work, there are different ways in which one could, on the one hand, think about simply the aggregate of individuals, but also uh, the ways in which these individual stories embody these power-latent histories, right? So that Precious, for example, one could read it simply as the story of like this individual girl who triumphs over these forces, but you could also look at the different institutions, you know, welfare, the, the welfare state, um, the educational system that are failing, right? And that, yes, this particular individual managed to, right, carve out a satisfying life, but there are many, many people who are not, and the structurally, you know, the, that's what's in place for most people. So just encouraging that kind of more structural reading of uh, the ways we think about race. Um, as someone who writes about theater, I couldn't resist. I write about the work of, I'm writing a book that includes uh, the work of Anna and of uh, the Asian American dramatist David Henry Huang. And uh, he had a play, Yellow Face, that uh, had its premiere at the taper in 2007, went to the public in 2008 and 9. Um, and it's a it directly addresses these issues of, you know, racial formation at this contemporary moment and our post-Obama moment. You know, what, what is race now? You know, when, you know, we have multiracial people, globalization, and so on and so forth. And so his play Yellow Face was an attempt to deal with these issues. Act one of Yellow Face was a kind of farcical romp, if you will, of mistaken racial identity. David himself was involved in the Miss Saigon casting controversies in which Asian Americans mobilized to protest the casting of uh, the British actor Jonathan Price uh, in Miss Saigon. And David took this episode um, in a sort of self-mocking, quasi-autobiographical um, uh, act one, uh, to uh, invent the situation in which a white actor is mistakenly cast as Asian in one of his own plays, right? So there's a, it's, it's amusing, you know, um, all kinds of attempts to cover up the fact that he's really white, you know, he's a Siberian Jew, you know, and all of this sort of thing. Siberians are, you know, going to be the next big thing, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and so it ends in this, you know, moment in which um, the white actor Marcus Dahlman has, you know, become the king and the king and I, right? 
Act two is much more somber um, and uh, takes on the issue of, of when you take on a racial identity, in this case the white actor taking on an Asian American identity, you also have to deal with the downside of that racism. Um, and David points to the ways in which there are these enduring historical power-laden structures. So um, at a crucial moment, a New York Times reporter is interviewing David, and we have the uh, singular um, pleasure of the great playwright John Guare, um, who has kindly consented to read the part of the reporter name withheld on advice of official counsel. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, uh, I'm not an actor, so I apologize in advance. Um, but I'm, I'll be DHH, the David Huang character. I, it, I think David be, would be okay. He's into gender bending, so it's all right. So. Well, I don't know which is worse, starting off the day as an angry white man or a New York Times reporter. <laughs> so, well, uh, <laughs> but here are the things we find ourselves in. All right, we're at a, uh, an interview. And I say to uh, Mr. Wong, I want to know about your father and his uh, dealings with this bank he runs. How often does he go to China? Who does he see there? Has he ever expressed anger? bitterness, resentment towards America? Does he still have relatives in the old country, friends, anyone connected to the government or the military? John Dolly, we're on different pages. What page are you on? 81. Oh, voila. You're asking me to... Let's start again. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want to know about your father. We haven't rehearsed. It's a cold reading. I want to know about your father and this, uh, this bank that he runs. How often does your father go to China? Who does he see there? Has he ever expressed anger, bitterness, resentment towards America? Does he still have relatives in the old country? Friends? Anyone connected to the government or the military? You're asking me to give up my father? Only, only if there's something to give up. David, if there's one thing you care about, according to my research, it's what others think of you. <laughs> I mean, I believe you're a loyal American. That's what I'd write about you. Just give me something to work with. Why are you going after my father? Well, I I'm reporting on the work of federal investigators. You cleared him of this stuff years ago. Well, 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 now they're reopening the case. Mr. Wong, your father is a Chinese banker. Chinese-American. Well, exactly. There's a difference. And it's that difference that interests me. Look, if I were investigating Israeli espionage, I would look to the Jewish community. It's just logical. Did your father see himself as more American or more Chinese? That question makes no well, sense. Uh, sense. On the contrary, I think it's quite relevant. How about you? Do you see yourself as more American or more white? Well, that's not the same thing. No? No, not in the least. Why not? Well, because there's no conflict between being white and being American. <laughs> Did you really just say that? Well... There's a conflict between being Chinese and being American? Well, well no, of course I didn't mean and that. And how convenient. We even got that on tape. I should have said it's not the same because white is a race and China is a nation. You should have, but you didn't. You know, you're going to make a fascinating character. <laughs> what? When I write a play about all this. 
You're going to write a play about me? I'm going to have to use that quote someplace. Well, you can't. Why not? You're writing about me, aren't you? I'm a reporter. I'm a playwright. Nice to meet you. <laughs> God, I really thought we were past all this yellow peril. Where are you really from? Look, you are taking my slip completely out of context. No, I'm putting it in context. According to my research, let's review your stories. The illegal sale of satellite technology to China, the campaign finance scandal, Wen Ho Lee, and now the charges against Far East National. They're all yours, aren't they? No, 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 no. I, I wrote each one with a partner. Oh, don't be modest. It's amazing to think one reporter has broken all those stories, that you managed to find so many evil Asians lurking in so many dark corners of this country. You look at folks like my dad, like Wen Ho Lee, and suddenly their eyes might as well be taped up and covered in piss-colored makeup, because all you see are all those bad guys in the movies who ever put on yellow face. You have no idea what I do or don't see. Thank you for letting me read it. Thank, Thank you, you John. <laughs> beautiful. John. Uh, John. John, you're not. Don't leave, because there, there's a way in which you should be on this panel. And I don't know if we can bring up an extra chair if you have a few minutes. Um, oh, no, it's too bad. Because, of course, oh, you, you, uh, you know, um, White is a race, and yes. you deal with characters of other races. And maybe before you leave, if you could just say a few words about what you face as a writer when you, as a white male, attempt to create in a hot environment a character of color. A character of color. I have a new play called A Free Man of Color that George Wolfe is directing that opens in the fall at Lincoln Center that I wrote for Jeffrey Wright. Who was doing it? And I must say, people have said, "How do you have you know to write a, 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 a character of color?" Uh, well, I think it's the same. Once they asked Lillian Hellman, "How does she write a, a man?" <laughs> and it's like, "How do I write a woman?" Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that uh, uh, it's what was said about the specificity, specificity of the character. I mean, I'm not making any. I'm involved with people who are in situations of which color is, determines the power of the scene. Whether it's, uh, in this case, my play is about a, uh, a, a black man who is also the rich, who controls all the finances in this, uh, the town of New Orleans. It's an imaginative story. And, uh, but not really. Uh, before, when America, when uh, New Louisiana was still, uh, uh, belonged to Spain. And because this man is black, his race does not enter into it at all because he is the richest man in town and every, he controls, as in David's play, he is the banker in town. And so race doesn't come into it. All it gets to become about economics. And for me, uh, in terms of my play, I'm not speaking, I, I feel very uh, arrogant talking about race on this panel, but uh, presumptuous. But for me, it's a, uh, it's a story very much about... Uh, uh, race allows power, and it's about who has. Race to me is a very is part of our identities, which are very very fluid things. And uh, it was e it was helpful writing this because it's written in an historical time in 1800, so I didn't have to deal with modern. I was dealing with a whole new aspect. What was exciting for me was writing about a black man who was the most powerful man in New Orleans. And uh, so I had to, it allowed me to avoid any stereotypes. 
and I didn't have to, there was no model, there was no generic model for me to, uh, uh, to, to approach in this, writing this guy. It's, uh, and in Six Degrees of Separation, I, the main character, what I was fascinated with was a young African-American man who adopt, became the white person that the white people wanted him to be. He became their ideal mirror. And that fascinated me. And I remember, I was very fascinated. This play, uh, Six Degrees, is about uh, uh, a, a young man who pretends to be Sidney Poitier's son and is accepted by all these people. And it was a very, uh, I, I won't mention this man, but it was a man who was a very, very successful black man in New York in a specific industry. And he said, I hated your play. I said, why? He said, because you blew my cover. He said, for years. I've posed, I've used Sidney Poitier, I've used my last name as Poitier to get a, rest, a, a table at 21 or at the Four Seasons when I wanted to go to a fancy restaurant. I said my name was blank uh, Poitier and I'm the son of Sidney Poitier and I always got a great table. So he said, thanks to your play, you kill all my reservation <laughs> techniques again. And that fascinated me to see how that, uh, how, how that identity of uh, the fluidity of race, the identity of race uh, that race was something was part of our identity. How we race is something that we is perceived rather than that we are. That's one aspect of yeah. it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think the line you have no idea how. I, what is the line? I, you have no idea how I see you or what? I, the last line. The last the, line. That's no, why I read. You, you told yes, me not yes, to read that. Yes, 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 yes. It, yes it said, uh, it, "You have no idea what I do or don't see." Yeah. You have no idea and what that, I do that to me I, was the, the key line in that scene, that how much of race is perception. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Doreen, for asking me to be part of this. Thank you all. It's wonderful to, to be, share this time with you. Great. So I have one question for all of you, and then we'll open it up. How much time do I have? 15 minutes. I have one question for all of you, just sort of a brief answers, just so we can open up and have everyone talk to you. This environment that we're in, right? I like to be practical. And this environment that we're in here at the Aspen Institute is an environment with very smart people who have influence, who have resources, who come here because they would like to make a difference. And as I've heard, uh, Walter Isaacson say before, an idea is a magical thing. And I think many of us would like to see ideas move into action. So the question that I have for each of you uh, is, you're all working in race some kind of a way. You're all attentive to it. Um, In some ways, you're part of a struggle that has a Long history. What do you need to do your work better? Because there may be somebody here who can provide it. Or think about how you could get it. What do you need to do your work better? Should I start? Yeah. Um, I think an openness to something that's different. <laughs> um, Precious being an example, like, and and I think Jeffrey talked about it here, and he talked about it in his panel. Like, <laughs> could he have sold that idea in a room in Hollywood? 
in a studio. Um, it would have been very difficult, <laughs> if not impossible. Um, so the openness to the difference, to the different, to what is different, to what we have known, is really important. And, you know, I, I in my own way, and, and I wouldn't consider burnout as high art, but I want to bring the different <laughs> things that are fresh to the screen and, and show people that we can have characters of different color and ethnicities and make it interesting and make it fresh and have, have an audience for it so that I can extend it further and maybe have a storyline or a series that revolves around a person of color. Because Burnout it still revolves, for the most part, around four white people, four white characters. And they're interacting in this multicultural world, but it revolves around four white characters. I would like to be in a room where people are open to the idea where that doesn't have to be the case. Well, in fact, in one of, one of what I like so much about either one of your blogs or an interview that I read was your clarity and your enthusiasm and your joy about plot and character, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So my experience in Hollywood is that, you know, and I think there was a young man here yesterday who made a call for more black judges, more black obstetricians, more black professionals. Yes, you, young man. Uh, that we need to see more positive images. Well, a positive image is not enough. If your character's not driving the plot forward, you have no agency whatsoever. That's right. <laughs> None. That's right. And they don't need you. Right. And nothing's going to happen to you. And nobody's going to learn anything about your family. When you said in our pre-meeting, about the executive, I hope you don't. You didn't say a name. So hope it's okay. No, I didn't. No, 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 it's okay. You know what was it that you said? The question was: Does it have to be? Well, it was interesting. I, I, you know, I've, I create all sorts of villains and good you know, good characters and bad characters, and they come in all colors and stripes on our show. Like we, we talk, you know, everybody can be a bad or good person, and 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 within that, they have some complexity. We even try to make the bad guys complex in their own way, try to give people a glimpse for why they are who they are. But I had written this one character who was uh, Dominican. He was a gang leader. It was really interesting. It was kind of loosely based on a gang leader for a day, which I was, it was an outstanding book that I had read uh, about how this gang leader, for all his foibles, and he was a criminal, was doing this kind of interesting thing for his community. It was actually a de facto government at providing services. And I just thought it was a fascinating character, and I kind of took that and ran with it. But... As I was pitching it, you know, the, the executive said, does it have to be a gang leader? And I was like, well, that's kind of the point. That's <laughs> you another know? thing. If, but, you, if you can't be flawed, you have no power. I'm in a show right now about a white woman nurse who cheats on her husband and is a drug addict. I don't know if that would be a Latino woman in that part. Mm -hmm. Especially now. If in our society right now, we're, we love psychopathology. Mm -hmm. We love moral ambiguity. And if you can't be in the grips of that, you're not going to have much to say. What do you need to do your work um, to continue your struggle? Well, I wouldn't phrase it as just my work or my struggle. 
I mean, I do think that, that, that I would like to see a whole transformation of language um, because I do think that in talking about race or ethnicity, it's almost like we have you know, a, a great gulf between the way um, one half of the population discusses it and the other half of the population discusses it. And Troy Duster, who's a sociologist at Berkeley, did a wonderful study once in which he talked to um, students about their experience of racism. And almost all the white students said that, they, that there was no racism as far as they were concerned. And then the, the, the instances that they gave was that, were that, that they had had a spaghetti dinner with their best friend or they played basketball with a black person. And therefore, you know, there's no racism on this campus. And when they talked to the black students, all the black students really talked about the structural. Um, they talked about the fact that, you know, that people were going on skiing trips and they didn't have the economics to join it, or the police were caught following them across campus and that um, it made their lives miserable and, and they couldn't talk about it in class. And it seems to me that if we're talking at two different levels, one is the individual and one is the specific, um, and only whites are talking at the individual or specific level, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the only way in which you can talk, at the moment you start talking about the collective or the or the larger structural issues, it's only the people of color talking about it, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're talking on two different tracks. Um, and that creates and licenses a kind of disidentification um, with that, that, that is self-destructive even to white people. So you know, I think last night we were talking about, for example, Joe the Plumber. Here, Joe the Plumber is really talking in the middle of a, of a, of a campaign in which, uh, and he's the victim of what, you know, when I first started practicing, we all called ghetto subprime lending practices. I mean, it was destroying parts of Los Angeles. This was in the 1970s when I was first practicing. And it really was targeted against black and Latino neighborhoods. It is still targeted against black and Latinos uh, disproportionately. But what has happened with this particular subprime um, crisis is that it was also aimed at middle-class white people. Middle-class white people didn't know what hit them. And so you, you have this sudden disconnect. They, they're not victims of ghetto politics. Um, and the, dis the disidentification really sort of it was, was striking to me in Joe the plumber, who turned out not only not to be a plumber, not only not to be a businessman eligible for a $200,000 loan, but somebody who is you know, below working class, his house is on foreclosure, but so disidentifies with that because he is part of the American dream. This is what he ought to be doing. But, but, you know, but, but the whole vocabulary of class disguises the fact that, in fact, Joe the plumber is underclass. But underclass itself, that vocabulary is a raced term. There is no white underclass that we acknowledge in popular culture, at any rate, um, just as there is no black working class. I mean, one of the things that I was listening to in the class discussion that, we, that there was the other day is, is, is really that we have two different standards for middle class. I mean, there's the white middle class, and then the black middle class is anybody who's not on welfare. I mean, it's anybody who has two or three jobs all the way through Oprah Winfrey and Bill, and, and, and Bill Cosby, and we have a completely separate vocabulary for that. And the, the sort of industry, the hard-working base of, you know, a, a sort of populist movement has so easily been co-opted by one political party as opposed to another because it disidentifies um, with the fact that, the, in fact, the majority of black people are working class. They're not underclass. And, uh, and the people who are in trouble now, the class divide, is, is you know, not just middle class black people. These are people who are struggling and one paycheck away from. Um, but, but, we dis but that vocabulary allows us to disidentify. Vocabulary, it seems to me, you're calling yeah. for a populist movement, which means leadership. I would say uh, what I need, everything that's been said before me, it pretty much covers it. But I would add to that just uh, 
funding for production and funding for marketing. Um, and um, really, that's it. But one of the, the things that most excited me about Precious was the idea that a young woman who looks as Precious does would be the central figure of a major motion picture. And that, to me, alone is a, a huge political statement. The fact that because it means something to an audience, it, it means something beyond just what that character is experiencing on the screen, but the fact that the... The, the resources or the focus would be on a character like her. And as you said before, the flaws are, 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 are important. And we she, find even in our own community, people don't want to see flaws as we talked absolutely. about today. Yeah. I have three, I have like four minutes. So you get one sentence and then I want one question. Yeah, okay. Um, structural change, uh, talking about, uh, thinking about race as uh, vulnerability to premature death differential relationship to mortality and thinking about the mortal stakes that are involved whenever we talk about Well, yes, race. this is what I love about Precious, that character right now. When I was a kid, nobody was fat, but the number of African-American girls were morbidly obese, right? Amongst other things, but just the ways that race is a material force, right, that lessens certain people's ability to, you know, live a long and productive life. And have joy actually. and yes, pleasure. absolutely. A question. Just pop right up and say it out. Yes. And people, you know, just charge the stage and talk to all these smart people as much as you want. Mike. Could you hold the mic close to your mouth? Thank you. Um, well, okay. Which is the media d d uh, distortion you were talking about. Uh, I was asked a group of, this is about young women, I asked a group of young women, what percentage of women uh, CEOs, uh, what percentage of Fortune 500 CEOs were women? And these were MBA students. And they said 25%. Okay, the real number is 3%. But it was, dis it was distorted because of media images of what they'd seen. And similar issues occur with other non-dominant groups. The second phenomena that I don't know how one addresses is the possibility and frequency issue. So it is possible, for example, that the individual white male will get followed by a police officer on campus. It is possible. But the frequency at which it will happen to him is substantially less than the frequency will happen with a young African-American male. A, woman, a, man may get, a white man may get interrupted in a meeting, but the frequency at which it happens to him versus the frequency at which it happens to a woman may be substantially different. The freak, um, it may be possible a white male will have a taxicab driver go right by him and not pick him up in New York City. But the frequency at which it happens to him versus the frequency at which it happens to an African-American male may be substantially different. How do we actually raise people's awareness of this? Because otherwise you stick with the individual who says, oh, that's happened to me. Of course that's happened to me. I've had that happen. But it's not happened in the frequency of which it's happened to the non-dominant group member. How do we deal with those two phenomena? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to take the three minutes? I think this has something to do with education. I mean, it's really ability to think logically and to think, you know, when, you know, when you're dealing with a situation that requires an analysis that's specific and when you need one that requires statistics, data, aggregate, um, interpretation, de demographic data. And, um, and I, I don't know if, um, I mean, and, and I worry that um, uh, 
we have a population that has been lulled, and not just by the media, but I think by the failure of our educational system um, to accept the most blatant nonsense. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the concerns I have um, about um, the way in which we entrench the black-white divide in terms of our success rates in everything, including education, um, there's a statistic that... Um, you know, we, we constantly talk about the differential between the black-white education gap, for example. But when you actually look at the statistics across an international level, um, of our graduates, um, when they, of our high school graduates, when they reach 12th grade, only 39% of Asian Americans graduate at grade level. Only 37% of white Americans graduate at grade level. 29% of African Americans and 26% of Hispanic Americans. So when we talk about fixing the black-white educational gap, which seems to be the entire drive of all of our educational policy, um, we are cheating everybody. Um, you know, we are really judging by the low. And, and somehow, the, in our imagination, bringing black populations up to white populations um, is a measure of success, when in fact, as a metric, it, it means that we are you know, internationally um, uh, dooming ourselves to, 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 to idiocy. Um, and it seems to me that's, that's exactly the, you know, what is reflected in our media. Um, I, yeah. Let me just add something. I think it's connected to your question. I think it's some, connected to what Jeffrey's uh, comments earlier about how you know, he was really uh, sensitive to the, the portrayal of African Americans in media. If you would believe the media, 90% of all crimes is, is perpetrated by African Americans, his example. What's interesting to me about now, and, and this connects to Obama, and it's almost like, you know, who to blame for the crimes at large? You know, when we had the subprime crisis, you know, initially it was all these, for the most part, let's just say, white, they were white males, CEOs, right? Running countrywide and all these, these banks. Then, over time, it seems to me, and a lot of this has been echoed in this festival, that the, that the, that the, the, the debate kind of shifted from these are the people to blame to that bailout. I don't know about that bailout. Who is responsible for that bailout? All of a sudden, the debt that was incurred by that bailout falls at Obama's feet, right? So the crime was a subprime crime that now all of a sudden leads to Obama. Same thing, by the way, with the oil spill, right? Who's, who's the initial face of that for what lack of an environmental crime, right? The BP chairman, right? Over time, it's now shifting, I think, as I read articles, to the lack of, of, uh, of, 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 of attentiveness by the Obama administration, right? So I just find this fascinating because I think we have to hold media to, you know, they, we have to hold their feet to the fire. Well, we are in an age where it's hard to get people to take responsibility. I want to say thank you so much to each one of you for coming here and joining the Aspen Community of Ideas. And I want to thank the organizers for creating this racetrack uh, this year to use a word that Jeffrey and I have spoken quite often in the last two, day, two days. This is a, a precious moment. This is a grace note moment. We may not be in a post-racial America. We certainly aren't. But because we see this gap, it's a time when every one of you in this room can make a difference. And the fact that you came here this morning means to me that you want to make a difference. So I thank you so much. And please continue the conversation on the walk, around the coffee uh, 
earn and everything else. Thank you for coming.